All right, we are going to pick up our study in Ephesians. We'll be looking at the end of chapter 2 this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to follow along. Or if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some under the uh, chairs where you are sitting, and you can use those to follow along this morning as well. Ephesians chapter 2, begin at verse 19, and I'd like to read this for us. Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, today you know we're going to be talking about your purpose, your plans for the church, and how the church should look like, what it should, uh, how it should function in our world, and the things that you've called us to do and to be. And Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to really see how this applies to our local church here and your plans for us, to affirm what we are doing well and to correct us where we need to grow. And for each of us to consider what our responsibility is in making the church the best it could be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this time of year, we often have friends and family over at our house. And one of the things we like to do when we have people over is we usually play some board games. And one of our favorite games is a game that's been around for a while called Catchphrase. I'm sure many of you have played it. You know, it's kind of a fun game where you have this disc that gets passed around a group of people. And the object is, if you haven't played it, you're trying to get your team to guess the right word that comes up on this disc as you uh, move along and different words appear. And uh, you try to give clues to get them to figure out what this word is as quickly as possible. And really, the only rule is you just can't say the word or a form of the word. And then they make their stabs at guessing it, and you pass this disc on to the next person. Well, when I was doing this study of this section of Ephesians chapter 2, I kind of felt like Paul was doing that here. Now, Paul is talking about the church, and he is describing the church, but he doesn't use the word church. It's like what he's doing is he's giving us this 3D look at what the church is to be like without actually saying it. In fact, even though in Ephesians, uh, God's plan for the church is one of the big themes all the way through. In fact, I don't know of a book that gives us a better picture of the church than Ephesians. Uh, he doesn't use the word that often. In fact, it's only occurred once so far in chapter 1 verse 22, when he talked about God's plan and perspective for the church. Now, why is that? That may seem a little unusual to us. You know, why is he talking about the church, but giving us these different looks at it? Well, in many ways, the church was still a new concept. I mean, the first to use this word in a Christian sense, if you will, was Jesus. It had been applied to this synagogue, uh, this word that was used in Greek, ekklesia, but most often it was a word that was used in the secular realm. Uh, Jesus used this word in Matthew 16, 18, when he said to Peter that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
But like I said, it was a word that was borrowed from the secular realm. Ecclesia, or assembly, could refer to any public gathering of people. In fact, among the Greeks, it was often in those cities that they would gather uh, in a way that we might, like when we gather at the polls to vote or when we have our primaries and there are discussions taking place about political issues or uh, candidates that are coming up. Uh, that's how the Greeks used the word. But here Jesus uses it in a different sense, and he applies it to the people that he is going to call out from the world. It was given new meaning by Jesus and the apostles. Ecclesia means called out ones. God was creating a new community. And we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been called out of the world to live for him and to live in a way that is different. Now, that was a radical concept. We saw that last week when we, thought, uh, when we saw how Paul had written that God had brought together these two diverse peoples, Jew and Gentile. And you can think of them forming a new body of believers with kind of new customs and practices. And here you had the Jews that were steeped in their tradition. They had their understanding of what the temple was like and the priesthood was like and the synagogue was like. And so they had all their customs and traditions that they would want to bring to the church. And then you had the Gentile believers who had come out of really pagan kind of worship practices, idolatry. Uh, they're coming with their ideas of what this maybe would look like. And I think Paul was concerned that those Gentile believers might feel even more on the outside if this was just dominated in terms of Jewish practices or customs or things like that. And so he begins to teach them about the church, and he gives them this perspective on what the church is to look like in God's plan. And in this passage, he gives us three pictures. And he tells us in verse 19, for example, the first one is that the church is like a kingdom. The church is a kingdom that belongs to God. In verse 19, he said, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's people. And it is that word, citizen, that I am picking up on here. We are fellow citizens with God's people. Now, in the ancient world, just like today, citizenship was highly prized. And those words that Paul uses there to describe how the Gentiles were as foreigners and aliens also were words that they would understand from their citizenship. Foreigners were those who were strangers living in a different country. Aliens, and there was a specific word that was used here, aliens were sojourners who had chosen to live in another country, this was their preference. Maybe they had moved from their homeland. They had chosen to live in a different country, and they could secure some rights if they were willing to pay a small tax. But it was not the same as being a resident citizen of that country. The rights of Roman citizens, for example, were extensive. They included the right to vote, the right to hold office, the right to serve in the military, the right to buy and sell property, the right to enter into a contract, the right to have a fair trial, or the right even to appeal to Caesar. 
And we see in the New Testament how Paul used those rights. He was a Roman citizen. And uh, he made appeals to that at different times. For example, his Roman citizenship resulted in an apology at Philippi when he was arrested and put in jail without a trial. And when the authorities found out what they had done, they were embarrassed. And they were like, uh, you know, this is one of those situations where today somebody could have been sued. And they were apologetic and they released him. Paul also avoided scourging in Jerusalem by appealing to his citizenship as a Roman. And he was also able to request a trial before Caesar when he was being brought before Herod and brought before the authorities there in Caesarea. And then he appealed that he wanted to plead his case before Caesar and to Caesar he would go. Roman citizenship was a source of great pride. And I think we understand that in our world living as Americans or citizens of the United States of America. We understand that there are great privileges that go with living in this country. The freedom we have to assemble, to worship, the freedom we have to vote, freedom we have to elect those who serve in office over us or to participate in that process. Whenever I travel overseas, too, I also come back, and I am very grateful for all of the blessings that we have in this country that I think we just take for granted until you travel to other parts of the world. I mean, when I go into Latin America and different areas, whether it's Ecuador or Peru or others, I see how people live often in gated communities or there are bars on everything or there are uh, locked gates to the entrance to their home. And there's uh, sometimes uh, barbed wire on the top of those fences or there's broken glass that is there to try to deter theft. And I go, it's just so different. You know, I, I drive home to our neighborhood and everybody's got their house and, you know, you don't worry about things in that same way, being lost or stolen. And you feel like you have neighbors that are looking out for each other and it's so different. Or when you go shopping down there and you see the abundance that we have in this country compared to what others have. Or even I notice the air pollution in major cities as opposed to coming back here and the emission standards that we have. Things like that that we take for granted sometimes. It makes me grateful to live in this country and to have the freedoms that we enjoy. But what Paul is talking about here is something even greater. He would say to the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, and ultimately that's where our loyalty lies. He tells us in Colossians that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We have become citizens of his kingdom. Now live like that. And to the Gentiles who once were foreigners and aliens, he writes, you are now fellow citizens with God's people. You are full members in the body of Christ. There's no second-class status here between Jew and Gentile. You are full members in God's kingdom. Wow. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that as citizens of God's kingdom, we are bound by a common ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we also are bound by a common law, by God's word. That's the guide for how we should live as citizens of this kingdom. And we also share common privileges and responsibilities. We have the privilege that we can come before God in prayer at any time. We have the privilege that we can meet as we do on a Sunday morning like this to worship the Lord and to come together without fear. We also have responsibilities to serve in the body of Christ and to use our gifts. We have a responsibility to give back to the Lord the first fruits of what he has given to us. We have the responsibility to be his witnesses in the world and to share the good news of the gospel with others. Those are the privileges and responsibilities that go with being a citizen of God's kingdom. And how does someone gain this citizenship? Well, here's the big difference between, say, a Roman citizenship that could be bought. In God's kingdom, you can't buy it, and you can't earn it. You must be born into his kingdom. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the difference. You have to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the only way that you can enter into God's kingdom. It's by putting our trust, our confidence in Jesus and what he has done for us when he died on the cross for our sins. Secondly, Paul tells us the church is a family, and we see that also in verse 19, when he talks about how we are members of God's household. We are members of God's family. Jesus himself would teach us that God is our Father. And not only would he say that God is our Father, but he taught us that we can come before him and call him our Abba, Father, our Daddy. And that just, I mean, that just astounds me because, you know, I think of God whom we are to revere and respect and honor as holy, and all of that is true. And yet here is Jesus using this most intimate term for a father that would have been used in a family. To call him Abba is like calling him Daddy. And to think that we can come before the God of the universe in that way and call him our Abba Father is astounding. Christ is our brother. He entered into this world. He became part of our humanity when he took upon himself our flesh. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's what's astounding. In the book of Hebrews, it says that, that both the one who makes men holy and the one who is holy are of the same family. That Jesus entered into our world, he became like us to represent us before God the Father and to pay that penalty for our sins. And he goes on to say that all who belong to God's family are really brothers and sisters in Christ. We are members of one household, and we are family. And there are things, there are responsibilities and privilege that also go with that. The New Testament uses this language of family often. In fact, in 1 Timothy, I'm going to give you an example where Paul is instructing Timothy, who's a young pastor, he's probably around 30, and here he is, put in responsibility to lead this church and to minister to those who are there, and you've got all ages in this church. And, you know, Timothy's maybe wondering, what do you do when you have an issue that comes up? And Paul writes to him and says, Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly but exhort him as if he were your father. 
and treat younger men as brothers and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. What is he saying there about the church? He's saying that we have these kind of familial relationships with one another, and that's how we're to treat each other. Those who are older, to treat them with respect as we would a father or mother. Those who are peers or younger in our church, to treat them as brothers and sisters, and to do that with absolute purity in the body of Christ. Those are terms of endearment. Father, mother, sister, brother. And if you did not experience those kind of loving relationships in your home, God's intent is that you would find that here in the church, that that's how we would care for one another. A family is a place where you can be yourself and find belonging, acceptance, and love. And the greatest thing we can do for one another in the body of Christ is to love one another just as Jesus loves us. We are a family, and we are to treat one another in that regard. You know, these last few days, it's been fun. Uh, we're uh, celebrating kind of an extended Christmas at, at our home as our kids and our grandkids arrived on different days, but it's been great to be together. And I think about those fa- family relationships, and I think the older we get, and especially maybe when you get to that grandparent age, you value the time together even more because it doesn't happen as often as you might like. And when we get together, you know, if I get up in the morning and I want to stay in my pajamas and have breakfast, you know, or if we open our gifts on Christmas, you know, and we're just sitting around kind of casual and doing that, and I don't even shave maybe right away in the morning, that's okay because we're family. Just don't post any pictures on Facebook. You know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like just wait until we're ready for the day, right? You know, and all that. But you can do that, and you can relax, and you can wrestle on the floor with the grandkids, and you can have fun. Or we took them out of the park that's just to the north of where we live here in Lindstrom and took them out on sleds and out on the hills and the trails and this new snow, and they were having a grand time, and uh, it, it was just fun. You can do that as a family. You can be yourself, and you can be casual and find acceptance there, and it's okay. And I think about that in the body of Christ, that this should be a place where we experience loving relationships, where we experience acceptance, encouragement, where we find role models for how we should live, how we should um, conduct ourselves in the family of God. How do we treat one another? If you're newly married, maybe you look at older couples who have had strong and healthy marriages and you say, I want to be like that. And what can we learn from them? Or if you're new to the faith and you look at others who have walked with God for a number of years, you say, boy, I want to be like that. Who could help me to grow and be established in my faith and in my walk with God? All of that is supposed to happen in the body of Christ because we are a family. And honestly, I think this is one of the greatest needs in the church today, that we need to recover a sense of family in the church. You see, in America, we've kind of brought this uh, individualism that we have in other spheres, and we've brought that into the church, and there are many people who think that, well, I don't need the church to be a Christian. I can, I can just do this on my own. You know, it's just me and God, and I can do that. And they never really connect with a body of believers, and that is not at all what God intended. Christianity is a corporate religion. 
Think about all the commands that are given in Scripture that we are to love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, that we are to serve one another, we're to encourage one another, we're to help one another. I mean, you can't do those one another's unless you are in relationship with other believers. We need that to grow in our faith. We need that to stay strong. And also, we need to be using our gifts in a way that is meaningful in the body of Christ. And I think the larger a church gets, the greater that challenge is. That's one of the reasons why we form these adult Bible fellowship groups that are like many churches within the church, so that within those, you can begin to build relationships with a smaller number of adults that you connect with and get to know who can be there to encourage you and pray for you. We need that in the body of Christ. And the third picture that God gives us here is that the church is a great building. And we see that in verse 20 and following. He tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And when he says that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, he means that they were the ones who were first sent out to declare the good news of the gospel. And everywhere they went, they established churches. These local congregations have called out believers who would meet together to encourage one another. The order, apostles and prophets, suggests that he is talking about New Testament prophets, those who were the first to declare the word of God to the early believers in those first centuries. And Paul went out, and everywhere he went, he established churches in place after place after place. The church is built on the foundation of their work with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In other places, like 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul will tell us, though, that it is Christ Jesus on whom the church is built. He is that foundation on which we all stand. But it's interesting to look at this word cornerstone. Uh, When I was doing some study on it, the commentators are divided on whether this cornerstone is the one that's the foundation, because that's one way that it can be used as part of the foundation. It could also be used as a capstone. And we're gonna, I'll give you an example of both. Most commentators think that Paul is using the word cornerstone in the same way that Isaiah did. And Isaiah in chapter 28, 16 said, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who trusts in him will never be dismayed. He tells us there that this cornerstone was one that was part of the foundation. In fact, it was so important, it set the angles for the whole building. Everything else was built off of it. And these cornerstones that have been discovered through archaeology, some of them are huge. Uh, Like in the temple in Jerusalem, some of those foundation stones were as big as a city bus. I mean, they weighed many tons, and how they were put into place is pretty amazing. But that kind of foundation stone was so important because everything else rested upon it and was built from that. And Paul gives us a a picture of that, you know, with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, and in him, the whole building is joined together, it's interconnected, and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
Others believe that Paul is referring to the cornerstone in a different way because the word he uses here means literally the tip of the angle. The tip of the angle. It sounds like something that would be high up on this structure. And in fact, there are examples in uh, history and in archaeology of stones that were placed high on a building that joined the right angles together at the top of a structure. Uh, Sir Henry Laird found an example of such a cornerstone when he was excavating at Nineveh. And often on these capstones, the royal name would be inscribed. It's similar in a sense to our date stone that we put in a prominent position on the front of a building, only this would be high up. It would have the royal name inscribed upon it so that everyone could see that this building belonged to this king or was built under his reign. And it was often the last stone to be put in place to complete the project, which is what Zerubbabel did at the temple. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7, it says, What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. And then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. There will be these cheers at the conclusion of building the temple, and the people would shout and praise God for what he had done, and the stone would be put in place. But I think about those two pictures, and really the point is similar. Either way, the point is the same, that the church is a building, that Jesus Christ occupies the most important place in that building, that union of believers. He is the head of the church, and he is the foundation of the church. And we are all joined to him, and we are joined to one another. We are the building blocks, or the living stones, as Peter would call us in 1 Peter 2. Each block is important. Each block is fashioned by Jesus Christ. Each block is put into position where we best fit. And you think about our gifts that we have been given, spiritual gifts and talents and abilities and where we serve in the body of Christ. It's God who does that and who directs us. And each stone is part of a great work that began thousands of years ago when God started to build his church. It's not a physical building, but is this union of believers through the centuries. And it will not be completed until he returns. That church, that universal church, is still being built. And it is not just any building. He tells us that it is a holy temple. A holy temple. And the word he uses for temple here is not the word that refers to the temple as a whole, but it's the word naos that referred to that most holy place where God would dwell, the holy of holies. And that just astounds me. That just as God once filled the tabernacle and the fire from heaven fell or where the Shekinah glory came down and filled the tabernacle or filled the temple, now God says that he will fill his church. And we, as a corporate body of believers, just like all the other local churches that serve and honor God, are that place where he has chosen to dwell and make himself known. It's in us. It's in our heart. 
It's in our worship and our praise. It's in our service in the community and the things that we do. That's how God makes himself known in this world. And if that isn't an awesome thought that amazes you, I think you need to get the CD and listen to this again. Because that idea that you and I are that holy of holies where God dwells and that God has chosen to make himself manifest here in our presence is a pretty amazing thought. And that really should elevate the way that we live. It should elevate our understanding of who we are and what God intends us to be, that we would give him our very best. God's plan for the church is that we would be his witnesses in this world. We are citizens of a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and our highest loyalty is to Jesus. We belong to a new family. God is our father. Christ is our brother. And we are to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of a great building, a holy temple that God is still at work, building, fashioning each one of us, but this is where God has chosen to make himself known. And it is all because of Jesus, our Savior. You know, when I think about our local church, it's why um, in our core values, we have stated some of these things that we want to be true of us. And we want to be that kind of church where there is biblical, life-related preaching and teaching. We want to be the kind of church where there is dynamic worship, where we come and lift up our Lord and our praises. We want to be a church where there are loving relationships because people grow best in the context of loving relationships. We want there to be intentional discipleship that all of us are growing toward maturity, and we're doing our part in that. It's not just that things are available, but we're looking at our own life, and we are saying of ourselves, you know what? I need to understand how to study the scriptures, or I need to learn how to pray, or I want to be growing in my relationship with Christ, or I need to discover what my gifts are and where do I fit in in this great building to be part of what God is doing in the world. We want to be a church that's committed to missions and church planting and evangelism and sharing the good news of the gospel. All because of Jesus and because of what he has done for us. So thank you for what you do to make this a healthy church. And as we head into a new year coming up, I'm just looking forward to seeing what God's going to do through all of us as we continue to serve him in this community. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the instruction it gives about what you intend the church to be. And Father, would you continue to do your work in us to make us that kind of body who is growing in Christ, who's worshiping and honoring you, who's helping one another to grow as individuals in our maturity, our walk with you, and who's making a difference in our world for Christ. May this be a year in which we see many come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord where others are raised up and hear your call to go into uh, missions or ministry or service in the local church in different areas, where you are continuing to build us and fashion us into the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us a spirit of unity as we follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.